electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, we're all over the fast-moving developments out of Ukraine. Investors on edge as tensions escalate. Stocks selling off across the board today. We're breaking down the fallout straight ahead. Plus, the energy market front and center. Crude oil holding firmly above 92 bucks a barrel is $100 oil next. And what impact will that have? We'll drill down. And later... Home Depot getting hammered, the stock plunging on the back of earnings, how our traders are playing the pullback. Big night as we start off here at the NASDAQ. We start with late-breaking developments. Out of Ukraine, you are looking live at Washington, where Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is holding a joint news conference Ukraine foreign minister, with the Ukraine foreign minister. The White House just a short time ago announcing a new series of sanctions against Russian elites, banks, and on sovereign debt. This comes as President Biden calls Russia's move into Ukraine a, quote, invasion. The rising tensions leaving investors on edge, stocks falling today, but finishing off the lows here. And as tensions flare, the big question on our minds tonight, how does it impact U.S. investors? And specifically, will it have any impact on the Fed's plans to raise rates? Guy, because ultimately we understand that this could involve casualties, and that's always tragic. But ultimately, we care about what happens um, with the U.S. economy here. Yeah, it's great to be back. Now, listen, we're tasked with trying to figure out how the markets are going to trade. So we understand, I think, collectively, loss of life is a tragedy, and this is not a very pleasant series of events that's going on. With all that said, if, in my opinion, if this changes the narrative at our Federal Reserve, I think we're, more, we're in deeper trouble than I thought we were. I don't think this should change in any way uh, their steadfast belief that they need to move forward and that they're behind the curve. Now, you can argue that this will slow economies. I get it. But the inflation bugaboo is out of the bottle. They need to control that. They've acknowledged that. And by the way, it's only going to get worse given the events that we're seeing. So if your question is, will this change the course of the Fed and then theoretically create that put again? I say absolutely not. Yeah, so I guess the point that Guy's kind of hitting on here is if it exasperates some of these inflationary pressures, if it kind of further makes worse the kind of supply chain issues that we were hoping by this point in 2022, we'd be much beyond here. And, you know, we've seen a lot of data about some of the stuff getting a little bit better in the ports and, and you know, the potential for at least a spike in commodities that are huge input costs for U.S. corporations or corporations globally that they were likely to abate. So all of these geopolitical things, while we can look out and we can see and we can kind of get a sense for what sort of the near-term impacts were, the uncertainty of how long they will stick around, I guess, is the real issue. And one of the things that we've been thinking about as it relates to the economy and also the markets is like, okay, well, what is the near-term effects of some of the wage increases and some of these other things? And we could kind of look by them when it comes to valuations. But right now, with interest rates going the way they are and the Fed really intent on doing what they're doing, and I agree with Guy, I mean, they really, for credibility purposes, have to stay the course here because that is the real issue. But valuations will continue to suffer. There's no changing that anytime soon. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Karen. So uh, I find myself agreeing with Dan oh. on our midday call. I know about uh, uh, these markets. One of the, we'll get to the rest of it. But one of the things I want to point out, though, I do think that the Fed has definitely made it clear we are heading down a new path. We are no longer easing. We are tightening. It's just a question of how quickly we go down that path. And I think they have some room to take a little bit off the gas. I think they can do 25, start with that, just stay on the path, and their credibility will remain intact. I think. But to Dan's other point on our call today about could this market have been headed for this kind of correction anyway? anyway? I think it's an excellent point. And I think it was happening before this really got going. And so they happen to now converge and that makes for a difficult market. But I think you're right. I think this was happening anyway. Evaluations were stretched in a market where the Fed was going to be raising. If we didn't have this geopolitical situation, Tim, do you think this is where we were going ultimately? Do you think this sort of pulled forward the losses we would have faced anyway? Yeah, I do. Uh, and, and again, if you if you look at the triple Qs or the Nasdaq 100, um, you could take us down to 310, which I think is a really important level. And you're still uh, holding the bottom end of a, an enormous five year bull market. Um, we're talking about the Fed here. What does Ukraine mean? I think if anything. It puts more pressure on the Fed to act. And, and so I don't think this is uh, going to be something that, that causes real disruptions in the at least in the in the short to medium term, which is where the Fed is moving. The Fed's more focused on inflation. Everybody's probably gotten these stats till they're blue in the face about where Ukraine sits as a as a commodity provider for the world. They're, they're effectively the fourth largest commodity provider for the world. There's all kinds of things we use every day uh, that they're going to have a big impact on. I think the Fed, uh, if anything, has to move faster. But look, um, the Fed's been priced. We, we, we've got at least seven Fed hikes priced into the futures curve. So this is a market that's been consumed appropriately. We say this all the time, more Fed, more volatility. Um, that's where we are. So uh, I don't think that the market was going to do a lot, uh, a lot different with or without Ukraine. Agree with that. And in fact, I hate to poo-poo uh, this, these events because, as we're all pointing out, it, it's a scary time for the world, uh, especially if you listen and go to that Putin speech. That's very scary stuff. And he's a man of his word. And I've spent time in Russia. Uh, I, but I tell you what. Um, markets needed to do this. And I think we tested those intraday lows today uh, from Jan 24 and bounced for now. A few months ago, Guy, we were talking about a CNBC survey about concerns uh, going into 2022. And you all correctly highlighted geopolitical as a top concern going into this year, which was not identified in the survey as a top concern here. What ultimately is the concern? Because Russia, Ukraine is, is one situation. The implications of this as it relates to, let's say, a China and a Taiwan uh, that's a whole other ball of wax. And do you think that's sort of is that what you're looking at when you when you say geopolitical concerns, how it sort of can be extrapolated to other situations? Absolutely. And we talked about this in the fall. And this is not revisionist history. We actually did have these conversations. And I think collectively we said, look, we think the things are really going to get bad, get worse, uh, sort of accelerate post Olympics. And quite frankly, it's exactly what's happened if you look at the timeline. So you mentioned, you mentioned Russia, Ukraine, obviously. I don't think that situation is going to abate anytime soon, unfortunately. But I think, again, China, Taiwan is out there as well. And to think that that's not going to sort of manifest itself at some point, I think it's just foolish to believe. I think that's what's been going on all along. And my concerns in the fall were exactly what's playing out now. And what does that happen? I mean, oddly enough, Mel, quickly, what you're going to wind up seeing, and we talked about this as well, is some weird reaction in the bond market where... You're going to see a flight to quality in the form of 10-year yields going lower 
and two-year yields staying stubbornly high. So they're going to be dealing now with a flattening yield curve even more so on the heels of this, in my opinion. Yeah, and the yield curve has been a predictor of recession. And, and if, had we been on the air um, last week, Karen, I know that you would have probably mentioned this, um, the Credit Suisse Financial Services Forum, at which a lot of the bank CEOs go to, they make a lot of comments, and a lot of CEOs were talking about stress testing their portfolio, specifically Brian Moynihan over at Bank of America, saying that they are stress testing the portfolio in the event that f- the Fed loses control over inflation and the economy heads into a recession which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and and I, of course they have to do that, but right. to actually think that that's what they're proactively doing right now is interesting. Yeah, I actually missed that. I think I was watching curling probably is what yeah, happened, and then I didn't see those comments. But they do that as, as a matter of, you yeah. know, every year. Um, but I think now it's uh, more of a real probability, right, than it has been. And, you know, we've, we've gotten used to credit quality that's really good, mm-hmm. and that's been good for banks. That's one of the sort of underpinnings that uh, I rely on right now. So that would be bad if we start to see those things happen and then credit quality get worse. This clearly, the two-year, 10-year spread has gotten, I think it closed at maybe 35 today, down from 90-something. We're going to see net interest margins get squeezed. We probably won't see that well, we'll see it, actually. It's during the, this quarter, so we'll see it. But I think that our economy is still in good enough shape, and the rotation out of high flyers into low price stocks is still there. I want to hang on to my bank. Yeah, and I would take issue with our economy still in good shape. The economy was weakening before the pandemic, if you think about it, right? And if you go back and you think about why these banks are stress testing right now is because, listen, our friend Peter Bookvar, Bleakley Advisors, had a note out this morning. He was talking about the, in the age, in the modern age of financial bubbles and financial crises, the Fed has hiked themselves into recessions. If you think about when they started hiking in early uh, 2000, right, as the Fed... Uh, uh, as the internet bubble was really just like kind of ready to pop and everyone knew it was going to pop. But then all of a sudden, after five years of unabated sort of, you know, kind of just b- blowing up, the Fed started raising because they were worried about some of the same things of overheating. Right. And then we saw a two year bear market. Same thing happened when they started hiking in 2006. They were worried about obviously all the financial instruments created around the bubble that was inflated during the housing crisis. So here we are again. We have trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus that have really kept this um, economy afloat. And we've seen risk asset bubbles of all sorts. When you think about it, obviously crypto, and you think of NFTs, and you think of SPACs, and you think of, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And everyone who was trying to come to market over the last year, they had this window to do it, I guess, right before the pandemic. And then we saw it again in 2020, once things, it seemed like we're out of the woods. So at the end of the day, of course, there's going to be another recession. Did they just basically hike themselves into it? Of course they did. Isn't it sort of good, Tim, that we worked off some of the bubble, bubblicious tendencies of certain sectors, though? I mean, that that popping has been in slow motion or in some cases fast motion since February of last year. And it hasn't just been high multiple tech and companies that don't make money. I mean, if you look at look at discretionary uh, branded apparel, look at Lululemon, Karen's Lulu, uh, probably on, on a 13, excuse me, on a 23 EPS south of just south of 30 times. Nike, probably low 30s. So uh, these are companies that were trading in the mid to upper 40s. We have seen uh, major froth come off. And I, I would just say to me, this is really more a, about uh, margin and, and, and the dynamics of what we're willing to pay for stocks, because I, I think we're going to talk 
talk about Home Depot uh, a little later in the show. We, we've certainly been talking about that's the theme of this earnings season. I don't think it's that, that uh, um, you know, where we are in the cycle. I don't think we're near the end of the cycle. I don't think we're about to go into a recession. I think the economy actually uh, does get a, a war-type benefit from COVID. And, and Omicron is becoming a distant memory, thank God. So I, I think, if anything, we've got a case here where we're staring at margins, we're staring at SGNA, we're staring at company management that aren't going to be bullish. That's the dynamic for equities here. And it's not run for the hills, uh, but it is one where I think the, the message will not be clear. All right, let's bring in Julian Emanuel, Chief Equity Derivatives and Quantitative Strategist at Evercore ISI. Julian, great to speak with you. Um, are we in the middle of what could be a down 20 percent move in, in the S&P 500? So you have to distinguish here. Could you go down 15 to down 20? You could. Do we think you go materially lower than that? We don't. And the reason is, frankly, is that there really is no sign of a recession on the horizon. Look, a spike in oil, we think actually it doesn't need to go to 150. We think if you go materially over 105 for any length of time, you could slow the economy down uh, sufficiently. That's always out there. But what you've seen is is really a realization over the last several weeks that whatever the quote unquote Omicron soft patch is, and I echo Tim's sentiments, thank goodness that's behind us, is that the economy is actually reaccelerating. And so from that perspective, yes, there is concern about geopolitics. Yes, there is concern about the Fed, but it, it is not yet a headwind to the economy, and it is not yet a headwind to earnings. And those two are what drive stock prices higher. Julian, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Sounds like you and I are a little bit more sanguine on the economy. But so given if that were the, the case, the economy is doing OK, what do you think the Fed's actions are? Are they going to be more on the hawkish side? I think you you nailed it in, in your view a few moments ago, Karen, is, you know, you're going to do 25 in March. You're going to make it clear that you're likely to do 25 at the next meeting and the meeting after that. Uh, our view is you get six 25 uh, basis point hikes over the course of 2022. You get the start of uh, QT balance sheet roll off. But when you think about it, the market knows that that is not an uncertainty for the market. And frankly, to us, the Fed is not going to want to go 50 and they're not going to want to react to geopolitics and go zero. They're going to stay the course. They don't want to cause a recession and they want the market to color within the lines to the greatest extent possible. Hey, Julian, it's Tim. Uh, we, we knew each other in another life where we focused on emerging markets. And, and this is a global uh, dynamic with Ukraine right now. But let's talk about the global and the rest of the world outlook, because there are some places that do very well in this environment. You've got one central bank in the world that's actually cutting rates, uh, and that may be very supportive to EM. Uh, but Europe or EM, how, how do you make those allocations here? So we think about Europe. Look, obviously, the British. And certainly, if you're a, a, a Russia-based investor, seeing you know basically drawdowns down 40 uh, since the peak last fall, you know there are reasons for that. Obviously, to us, Europe is a story that at some point there is going to be a diminution of this risk, and when that happens, it is a global reopening story. It is a likely acceleration. Uh, once again, this looks to be a year where projections for the Eurozone economy will fall short of, of versus the U.S., but you're still going to get good growth. 
We don't think this derails it. And from that perspective, valuations are very supportive of Europe as a value, as a mid to late stage cycle play. Julian, always great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Julian Emanuel, uh, multiple correction sounds pretty painful, Dan. Well, it's been go- it's what we've been living with, right, so for the last year, as you just mentioned. Right. And here's the weird part about it. And I think this is what investors are in right now coming around to the fact that the S&P 500, this was the headline today on the close, that closed down 10% on the year. We haven't had a down 10% on the year that take out early 2020 in a very long time. Now, granted, the S&P was up 26%, a little more with dividends last year. We were often saying the higher we go in the, into the end of the year, November, December, is probably the lowest we go in January. So that's kind of putting a button on that conversation that we just had from before. But here's what's different now, okay? Rates are materially higher, okay? And that yield curve that could invert, that's a bit of a problem. Now, I get it. People say, oh, the yield curve is predicted so many recessions that never happened, that sort of thing, or whatever. But what's different this time is that we've had this artificial growth. We have tons of debt. We've had really, like, just, just this binge on risk assets in so many different parts of, like, like the, uh, you know, like the spectrum that we've just never had before. Crypto at $2 trillion and that sort of thing. So to me, I think time is the thing that kind of works this thing off. When you think about rates aren't going much lower anytime soon, debt levels are not receding anytime soon. And if you talk about these overextended valuations that have corrected, they're going to take a long time to reinflate, in my opinion. All right. Uh, we've got an earnings alert here on Palo Alto Networks, a cybersecurity giant just out with earnings. Let's get straight to Christina Parks-Nevelis with the details. Christina. Lucky 13. That's the number of straight quarters where cybersecurity giant, like you mentioned, Palo Alto, Beat top and bottom line estimates, and the stock right now is popping over 7% in after hours trading. Revenues beat estimates, total billings climbed 32% year over year, and that reoccurring revenue for next generation products, that actually rose about 70% uh, compared to last year. And lastly, Palo Alto raised its full year revenue guidance. That was a key indicator for a lot of uh, investors looking at this company, and these are all catalysts for the stock climbing higher. The earnings report highlighted three pillars of strength, demand for, of course, cybersecurity, hybrid work schedules, and cloud computing. Of note, though, there's been no mention of any supply chain issues in this report, because that was one of the key things I wanted to see, as well as any word about new acquisitions, since it's been roughly a year since they've uh, had one. But the earnings call is going on right now. All right, Christina, thanks. Christina Partsnevelis. And be sure to catch Kramer's exclusive interview with the CEO of Palo Alto Networks on Mad Money tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern. So Zabit, more importantly, they raised the guidance, Guy. We didn't always get that from companies. No, but we're getting it from them, which is a good thing. And listen, this is a name we've talked about seemingly for years. It ran into some trouble with a lot of these other high valuation stocks a few months ago when it traded up to 575, and then people said, wait a second, it doesn't make sense. Here's the rub right now. 465, that level that we just held, that's where we broke out from in August. That's a good thing. They're going to earn $7.30 or so this year. If you give them 8 bucks this year, even with that, they're trading it 63 times this year's and probably close to 55 times next year. Very expensive stock, but it's best in breed. So I think you stayed long the stock, in my opinion, against that 465 recent low. Uh, there's obviously a lot of talk about cyber attacks, particularly on businesses with uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation, Tim. And there is some argument that spending on not only defense, but cyber defense will increase in a meaningful way um, as these tensions flare. No question. By the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tab this one. Guys, 
uh, Palo Alto because you've been talking <laughs> about this one forever. And if you think about the environment, it's you know this is a 25 percent uh, spend on cyber growth period. I think for the foreseeable future. So you throw network, you throw cloud, you throw you know SecOps, and this is a story that I think is going to give you that top line growth. It's not it's not cheap. Um, performed remarkably, heroically, if you think about what high multiple or higher multiple stocks have done in the last three to four months. Uh, really, you know, down 15% into this print, uh, took half of that back. Um, I think you have to stay long. Yeah, well, here's the thing. In this environment, okay, trading about nine times sales, and let's see if it can hold that 7% gain. On a gap basis, this company still loses money. That's what I'm saying. That's what's changed right now. If we were doing this a year ago, I'd say have at it. But go back to last week with NVIDIA. They put up a great quarter, a great guide. They got the current revenues up 10%. That thing has seen a multiple contraction meaningfully, and it sold off 10% in the next two days. So I'm just saying, like, I wouldn't be too optimistic. I wouldn't be chasing moves in this environment right now after earnings. So no have at it. So I said. So we're clear. Okay. No have it. Thank you. <laughs> Coming up, we're drilling down on the energy market. Oil prices on the rise as Russia-Ukraine tensions escalate. Where is this trade headed next? Plus, Home Depot tanking despite an earnings beat. The stock continuing a rough start to the year. How are traders are playing this one when fast money returns? The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money Home Depot. A real buzzkill today. Shares dropping despite an earnings beat this morning. The company saying sales grew 11% in the fourth quarter. Home Depot also projecting continued sales growth ahead. The stock dropping almost 9% today. It is now down nearly 24% this year. This seems to be a case, Guy, of things going back to normal. Yeah, I mean, finally, valuation, I guess, caught up to Home Depot. That's the only explanation I have. The technicals weren't great. Obviously, in December, you had these... Short-term double tops around 420. That obviously didn't help. Then valuations uh, became a concern for everybody. That didn't help. But I got to tell you something. If you told me what these numbers were going to be ahead of the report, I would have been long this stock all day long. They also said they're going to earn close to $200 billion in revenues in the foreseeable future. That's probably a 30% uh, revenue growth over the next couple of years, which is, in my opinion, pretty extraordinary. Valuation is a concern. Where do you buy it? Well, if you go back, I want to say to sort of June of last year, it sort of stopped and rallied from 305. I think that's your line in the sand. And given the way everything's trading, it probably gets there. 
Karen, is this a Home Depot specific story? Is this a bigger tell on housing or the consumer? I'm not sure if it is. I think one thing that was lost in the Home Depot story today is that the CEO said anything we could get on the shelves, we could sell. And so to the extent that they had supply constraints, that was really a problem. And so I, that, I, I think, wasn't really given a, a, enough sort of, to me, that sort of, okay, sales, maybe they're denied or delayed, I'm not sure which, but that the customer is still has desired to buy. So that's interesting to me. In ter- I guess, you know, I think it's just too expensive. I'm long that. I'm long lows. I think the story is intact, although I think the housing market will cool a little bit from where it was, just with rates being higher. But I do think last week we talked about home builders and that the demand is still there. But as housing prices get high, people are not going to be able to, to afford to buy new houses. They're going to redo parts of their old house. And so that's demand for Home Depot and Lowe's. I think it was just too expensive. It's now below the median P.E. that it had traded on the last few years. It's now south of 20. So I'm long. I didn't buy more today, but I like it. And I'm still long Lowe's also. Tim is gesticulating wildly and raising his hands. So what have you to say, Tim? I, 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 I can't wait to get back to the studio. It's not expensive. It's not even close to expensive. It's tra- and Karen, I think, just, just said that. Uh, but that's not what I was hearing from everybody. And, and I, I just think you have a case here. First of all, um, if you go back to previous, previous rate hike cycles and take Home Depot to where it traded down to, say, uh, and really even like recession cycles. So 2000, 2000, maybe a little bit 2018. This was an 18 times at its trough. Um, the stock trades at a discount now to the S&P. It usually trades at around 1.2 times. So, again, I, I know it's been easy at times to push this one uh, back a little bit on multiple. It's not expensive. And, and I think, if anything, they gave you some sense of where their pro business is growing and where they see their U.S. same-store sales comps. I think the commodity and the input headwinds are the biggest problem here, but not the valuation. Yeah, so, so nothing for me on fundamentals here. I'll just say this. Like, this is a really important stock. This move is really important. Last year, from its lows in early March to its highs in December, the stock gained 70%. And I sat there scratching my head the whole time like a dummy and being like, this is insane, okay? And so now we're talking about the stock. It's come off, what, it was down 9% today. It's off 30-some percent from those highs. And Tim is right. At 19 times, the stock really changed this cheap. Now, expected growth is, like, low single digits. But I guess my point is fo- focus on these names. Focus on these names that were infallible, you know what I mean? Even when as the market... Tells. As, as tells. yeah. And I mean, like, that's what's really important. And just so you know, and I hate to tell you guys, this is coming to a theater near you and an Apple and a couple of these other names that haven't broken yet because this market's not going to bottom and until it really gets irrational about some of the most loved long-term stories. That's my opinion. Is it coming to a theater near us, Guy, when it comes to an Apple? Do you think? What? Well, Having, having not been with theater in a while, it's hard for me to answer that question. <laughs> I think Apple's probably, listen, I mean, I think t- t- Dan's point is, you know, this will culminate when names like Apple capitulate. Right. I think he makes an excellent point. By the way, I mean, it's not like Apple doesn't sell off. It's probably had five or six 25 to 40 cent, 40 percent peak to drop declines over the last five or so years. So it could happen. And in terms of what Tim, I, I totally agree. Now Home Depot is cheap. I guess my point earlier was when it was at its zenith back in December, it definitely was a stock that um, maybe people were concerned about in terms of valuation then. Yeah. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. 
high energy. The oil rally rages on. But can this commodity keep climbing? A top analyst weighs in next. Plus, a retail rejection. Macy's reporting earnings and giving investors a key update on some activist calls. The traders are breaking it all down. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are continuing to follow the latest developments out of Ukraine. Uh, the energy market front and center, crude oil moving higher again today as tensions flare with Russia. Let's bring in Paul Sankey of Sankey Research to discuss. Paul, great to have you with us. Um, what's your, ta- you know, the last time I talked to you, things were, it was sort of early on uh, in this, in this skirmish, this, uh, you know, potential invasion. Uh, we saw oil prices uh, spike, basically, and, and you sounded sort of skeptical about the whole thing. What do you make of the situation now? Um, and what do you make of this spike in oil that has been a result of it? Uh, I think that we see maybe a trading opportunity here to short oil, actually, because I think the next thing that happens is uh, short oil, the commodity, because I think the next thing that happens is you get an Iranian nuclear deal. Um, as far as Putin goes, if you look back, actually, it was kind of predicted in, in funny ways that you can now see that he would invade kind of yesterday. It's not really an invasion. It's sort of, you know, affirming positions where there are already so-called separatist troops. Uh, if you look at the map, it's right at the east of Ukraine. And there's one theory that actually he declares victory tomorrow uh, because it's uh, a major day, Grand Army Day in, in Russia. So we'll see what happens with all of that. Uh, but as you know, the, the, the response has been pretty lame from the West. And essentially, it looks like there's no interest in him, in our view, going over to Kiev and beyond. That would be a disaster for him. That's where they'll actually fight him. Uh, but for this bit, you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of in line, as you say, with what we thought would happen. And as you remember, we said we thought oil was moving to an 80 to 120 range. You know, and now at uh, whatever we're at, 95 a barrel. And, you know, I think if we if we get an Iranian deal, which is likely what the administration is working on as one response here, a big one, uh, you could easily see oil trade off a few dollars. Paul, you've been spot on with all this. I remember last time you were on, I think you mentioned Marathon Petroleum. I think it was trading $67. I think collectively we thought it could get to 85. It got close. But I'm with you on this one. I think this is a classic buy the rumor, sell the news. But how cute do you want to be? Because I think the fundamentals still line up for crude to get to 110, 120 at some point this year. 
Yeah, thanks for helping me out there. It's a cute call. This is a call that, you know, when we get the news of the Iranian deal, which the Wall Street Journal has said it's going to be within, they said yesterday it's going to be within a couple of days, uh, then actually we would probably be looking immediately to buy straight back in because, as you know, the big story here, further to what you're saying about Home Depot and, and U.S. plays, is uh, the U.S.'s story, the U.S. oil demand story, is unlike anything I've ever seen. It is so strong. We're at all-time record highs. We're growing by all-time record increments. And once oil demand is strong, you want to be long oil and long oil stocks, that's for sure. And that's where we'll start the trajectory back to the 120 I'm talking about. So thanks for that. In terms of the shorter-term call, Paul, um, if you're inclined to short oil, the commodity, would the commensurate call be to short energy equities? No, because I noticed today the equities had a bad day. That's another buying opportunity. And we've had another good result tonight. Diamondback, Fang, stock we love, um, you know, had good results. If you remember, one of the trades I made was to be long Fang, Diamondback, and short Fang, you know, the tech stocks. And that's been a huge trade. Um, so, yeah, you know, things are going great. And we've still got uh, a couple of big oils to report here. Aventive should have blowout results. Uh, Oxy. Uh, these things, you know, if you look at it, I, I screened it on Sunday. Uh, of the bottom 25 cheapest stocks in the S&P 500, six of them are oils. And they're not oils you haven't heard of. We're talking about uh, ConocoPhillips. We're talking about Devon. We're talking about uh, Diamondback. You know, these huge stocks that are really good plays, really good management, really good assets. And it's $95 a barrel. And I'm bullish. So, yeah, they're all, the equities are great. It's just a cute trade if you want to make some money by next Friday. Short oil here. It's a hero trade, but a short, a short term. All right, Paul. Always good to see you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Paul Sankey, thank you for research. Uh, Tim, what do you make of Paul's call? Acute, I guess, means uh, short term. Uh, last time, but yes. I um, guess in no, British ease. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we love listening to Paul, and, and I think his point on Iran is really interesting. Um, I think the, the, the point on the US E&P names, uh, ConocoPhillips, Oxy, uh, you know, the, these names don't have any exposure to Russia. This is a great, great time for them. Um, and, and if you look at what energy equities are doing relative to the energy or the Brent price, they're actually outperforming. And they've been doing that uh, in the last six weeks or so. And that's something we haven't seen. I think that gets back to uh, investment over trade or, or cute. Um, but I think the, the other thing also is this is also a great time for chemical companies. So I think if you look at the spread of Brent uh, to refined product, this is great for Dow. This is great for Lionel Bissell. Um, and I think there are other trades here, not just straight into the energy space. Yeah. Guy. I'm with Tim. I mean, I, I guess I didn't mean to be cute when I said cute. My point was, you know, sometimes you can get a little too clever and outsmart yourself. But I happen to think that he's spot on here. I think there's a window where you could get short the commodity for a 5 to $7 pullback. Inevitably, I think this thing goes higher, but you stay long, I think, the underlying equities, which I think both Tim and Paul were saying. Yep. All right, Kramer's all over the move in oil. He's making the case for one energy company in today's Investing Club newsletter. Sign up now at CBC.com slash join the club or by using the QR code on your screen. Coming up, the BABA breakdown, China Tech in the crosshairs again today. The fallout straight ahead, plus the trade on Macy's. That stock tumbling despite a strong quarter. We'll break down the details next. Fast Money's back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Macy's making a big reversal after earnings this morning, closing nearly 5% lower following a top and bottom line beat. CEO Jeff Gannett telling CNBC hot off the report that focusing on the customer was the ticket to withstanding inflation. We do expect inflation. And what, I, what, we're, always, what we're always focused on is the customer is, is, is the winner here. We want to make sure that we respond to all the customer needs. Um, and we've got lots of opportunities to improve on our margins uh, because of all of our data science that we're deploying now versus where we used to be. So we're just, we're buying less, we're sourcing better, we're using all the customer data that we have, we're using personalization, we're marking down better. Macy's also rejecting a call from activist firm Jana Partners to spin off its e-commerce business. Shares are down more than 20% since the company's last earnings report in uh, November. What'd you make of this, Karen? Well, it was interesting how the stock traded, right? It was a really good quarter, and, I, you know, they seemed confident. One thing that was interesting to me was Macy's debt. I don't remember which agency it was upgraded it. So this thing really has come very much full circle in terms of the balance sheet. I think they increased their dividend, which they had cut. I think they also announced a buyback. So this is a very different Macy's than it was maybe two years ago. Even pre-pandemic, it was already in trouble. So good for them. I think with this momentum that they've got, they probably have some ability to reject that plan if they don't want to. I don't know how much Jana's going to turn up the heat. I certainly, I mean, they're skilled activists, but I think he's bought himself some time. Yeah, I mean, they cited costs. They cited the, the risk of execution. Tim, what did you make of this whole thing and how it traded? Right. And on the screens, it said bargain or bummer. It's, it's definitely not a bummer. <laughs> I, I, you know, bargain is a tough thing to say here. I thought the guy was really quite mild and, 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 and that's not a bad thing to do. As I said earlier, in the case of, you know, Pressure from margins, SGNA, labor costs. Uh, there's some things, but if you look at the core business, up 27 and a half percent or so uh, on on sales. I mean, remarkable. But even on a two-year uh, stack, uh, up six and a half percent. So, um, look, the, the whole activist angle certainly had been a driver coupled with Macy's uh, strong numbers last quarter. But but Macy's turnaround is Macy's turnaround. And, and I think um, bargain is certainly a better call when you're you know, inside six times uh, EPS and somewhere about four times EBITDA. So, uh, you know, I, I like the story. I don't own it right now. I have owned it. And, and I think this kind of pullback is, is very interesting. If you're in Macy's as a turnaround play, Dan, is that turnaround done so you're out well i mean maybe i mean here's the thing like a couple years ago pre-pandemic i would have said lights out on all these department stores but then you hear the ceo talking about their data science and their ability to kind of keep up with like the competing trends they've accelerated a lot of adoptions of different things i think when you look at this and you're very you should be very happy that the the debt rating was raised they have a lot of debt you know what i mean relative to their their equity market cap here and the story for activists used to be all that real estate i don't know where that went um you know what i mean so that was like part of the you remember they were saying it was trading cheaper than you know yeah estate. So I don't really know why you would spit off the online thing, because I'm assuming that the data science thing is really important as far as logistics and everything like that. If the thing is going to have a turnaround and it trades really cheap and they're going to, it's going to have to like rely also on the brand and their ability to kind of grow that and, and some of the other brands that they sell and how they associate it with it. So, you know, maybe we're in a new world order as it relates to retail. I just don't know. But I think to Tim's point and your point, Karen, you got the valuation on your side here. And if they could ever accelerate their sales, they are back at their pre-pandemic sales levels and the street expects them to be flat for a very long time. So you better be able to increase your margins. All right. 
Coming up, stocks under pressure as Russia-Ukraine tensions escalate. So how are individual investors handling it? The real read is next. Plus, a bad day for BABA, but options traders are betting on a big turnaround for the China tech name ahead of earnings on Thursday. That trade and much more when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks under pressure as tensions escalate between Russia and Ukraine. Investopedia with a new survey showing geopolitical fears among the top concerns for individual investors. Joining us now is Investopedia CEO Caleb Silver, an old friend, of course. Caleb, great to see you. Great to be with you as always. Thanks for having me. The survey was really um, eye-opening to me because it, it basically found that investors are buying the dip. Yeah, they're uh, fearful, they're a little anxious, they're a little bit rattled, but they're looking for opportunity. And that's pretty consistent with what we've seen for the past two years. We started this survey in February of 2020, right before this was declared a pandemic, about two years exactly. So worried and playing it a little bit safer with ETFs and index funds, but looking for opportunities to buy the dip whenever they can and looking forward in some of the biggest stocks they've they've owned for the past two years, Melissa. Are you getting the sense that this is the same investor who is investing in things like the ARK Innovation ETF and that there's been a real change in mentality? Yeah, but these are also tried and true investors who like the home cooking, who like the large cap stocks, who like the big ETFs and the big index funds. So they've experimented with ARK and with other investments, and they've told us as much, even with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. But these are self-guided investors, do a lot of their own research, but fearful of the same things that all of us are fearful about, inflation, rising geopolitical tensions, rising interest rates. So they experiment a lot, but they are pretty, pretty core investors and stick to those large caps when they can. Hey, it's Tim. So what what are these core investors excited about? Um, and, and again, I, I hear what you're saying, that they're they're going back to some basics on, on some of these core companies that have pulled back. Anything that they're excited about out there? Because it does seem like the, the sentiment is awful. Yeah, you know what we find whenever there's a lot of anxiety, we always have a good handful of our readers who are looking for opportunities. So they're looking for ways to play oil. They're looking for ways to play the inverse of the S&P 500, betting on future declines. They're looking for opportunities to trade where the damage has been done the most. And that's not very different from what we've been seeing for the past two years. Of course, they're fearful like the rest of us. But whenever there's opportunity, whenever there's a lot of fear out there, we always find a good handful of our readers looking to buy the dip on particular stocks and particular sectors that have been hit the hardest. They do think that there's a bubble out there. And so some of the things where they see bubbles, I thought really interesting, 33% Bitcoin, 30% NFTs, 20% NASDAQ 100, and also the S&P 500. So it's really across the board. Yeah, even after a lot of the pain we've seen across a lot of those assets, of course, Bitcoin and NFTs and Dogecoin also on their list of biggest bubbles, U.S. residential real estate also on the list. That makes a lot of sense. But even after the tumbles of some of those risky assets, they still feel like they're bubbly out there and they feel like there's a lot of froth. So there could potentially be more downside if they stay away. Now, we've noticed over the past two years they were buying into a lot of cryptocurrencies, some, some of them adding crypto for the first time in their portfolios ever. I think they may have learned the lesson of how volatile those assets can be. So they think they're still the biggest bubble out there. But also they thought it was an EV stocks as well. You mentioned the NASDAQ 100. Even after the fall of Melissa, a lot of folks still feel a lot of frothiness out there, even though they're willing to buy those dips when they appear. Yeah, SPACs up there too. Caleb, it's always great to see you. Thanks for your Thanks time. Thanks for having me. Caleb Silver of Investopedia. It's a good, new, it's a good sign that investors are, are getting back in, Karen, buying this dip for the long term. 
I think so. I mean, you know, I would say buy when there's blood on the streets, even if it's their own. It's my own. I didn't buy anything today, but there's a lot of things that I'm looking to buy. Very little that I'm looking to sell. But in terms of, you know, this uh, momentum, we talk about a pendulum and it doesn't swing and stop at fair value. It keeps going until it's way below value. And I don't even know that we've gotten to fair value yet for some of the real high flyers. So that that sector is not for me. Yeah, I would say, Mel, I'm not so sure it's so great that they're getting back in right here. If you think back to the last time the Fed was hiking rates in 2018, right, when the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield topped 3%. Here we are at 2% right now. The S&P 500 sold off 20% in what felt like a straight line over two and a half months. And so we are down 10% right now. And here's the other thing. Since then, think about how many hundreds of stocks very unprofitable companies have come to market. They just like vacuumed up investor capital and it went poof. Okay. Literally like 50, 60, 70%. Do that in crypto, do that in SPACs. Okay. And so my point is, is like a lot of that capital that we hear is on the sideline is waiting to buy the, the, the dip and all that sort of stuff. It's gone. It went away. Right. right and so, let me just and now push we have back a little bit. Let me okay, just push that, back. Okay. It's not just one giant market, right? Where everything yeah. was a high flyer multiple of 80 or whatever it is, or price to sales was the right metric to use. Yeah. It's a whole different market of all different things. And I think that there's a lot in the value section that has just been left for dead and boring and not interesting for years that is attractive now. Is it? But aren't those yeah. the things that have really been outperforming, if you think about it, over the last couple months as the market's gotten very volatile, staples and energy and some financials and stuff like that? So they've rotated. And then the rest of the stuff, hundreds of stocks have just like evaporated investor cash. You know what I mean? Over the last... Yeah, so that doesn't... Just because they've rallied some, right? right but I here's the one thing that we know. In the last two times when we talked about this, when the market topped out in 2000, it took two years to bottom out. And the same thing in 2007, November, to the lows in March or April of 2009. And I guess the point is, is if we really are at an inflection point, if we really have very similar setups with much higher debt levels than we've ever had, and the Fed and central banks around the world with much fewer tools in their toolbox, I don't think it makes sense to buy this first dip, especially when we think about 2018. Where was the Fed balance sheet relative to where rates were and everything like that? It was just in a different place right now, man. And so I just think sometimes sentiment overshot to the upside clearly last year, okay? It might do so to the downside. So just be careful with the S&P down. But look, I mean, okay, I think that is all true, but we've already had a gigantic move in some stuff. So it's not, not in like the S&P and not in the NASDAQ. If all you right. really think all right. Well, I want we need a split to... screen here. We need a split screen. I know. Screen. I come love on. this. Split we come back first day back split and screen. you fight. That's, that's why we're back here, right? Yeah. To have this sort of robust <laughs> conversation. We even got a man out of Dan. Okay. <laughs> Coming up, shares of Alibaba in the red today, but options traders are betting the China tech name could see some green after earnings on Thursday. We've got the set up when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Alibaba dipping deep into the red today as China looks set to crack down even further on big tech. Baba reports earnings before the bell on Thursday. Mike Co joins us to break down the action. Mike. Yeah, we saw some big moves today, but the options market is actually expecting some even bigger ones by the end of the week after they report. Right now, the options market implying a move of about 9%. We did see calls outpacing puts today. One of the areas where we saw a lot of activity was the February 115 calls that expire at the end of this week, almost 8,000 of those trading for about $4.10. Buyers might be betting that the stock is so bad it's good. All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Final trade time, Tim. U.S. oil, continental resources. Stay there. 
guy. Boston Scientific, Mel. Karen. Yes, short HYG. If credit markets get ugly, this will go down. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I like uh, Sankey's hero trade. My hero is ordinary. Sell XLE. <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.